Um, we're looking at Genesis 14. Let me just say a couple words before I read this. this. If you haven't read the Bible before, this can be a text where that is going to be strange sounding, I think. Uh, it's strange sounding to me. I've read the Bible a lot. And I just want to say, as, as I'm reading this, you should expect that when you come to the Bible, it's going to say weird things that you weren't expecting. Because if the Bible is better than you, <laughs> which, no offense, I hope it is. I hope it has something new to offer you. It's going to say things that sound strange. So you should just expect that. And uh, hopefully God has some things for us out of this text. So we're looking at Genesis Uh, Chapter 14, this is God's word to you because you're his people. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shineb, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, uh, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shevei Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined the battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, title king of Goim, uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleser, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the uh, women and the people." After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, uh, the, king, uh, the kings who were with him, uh, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shevei, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand 
to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take the thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Then Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it says things that we wouldn't have thought to say. And uh, we pray that you would take this obscure passage and you would apply it to our life, uh, that you would be our teacher, that you would send your spirit, and especially to teach us the gospel, that you are a God who rescues undeserving sinners. And you bring us to yourself, you bring us to your table, and assure us of your love. And would you even do that now by your spirit as uh, I speak these words? And would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this past year I uh, read a a biography about C.S. Lewis called The Narnian. And uh, it's kind of an interesting biography because it doesn't talk so much about C.S. Lewis's life and events that happened to him. But it's more following how did C.S. Lewis's imagination and his kind of view of the world develop. And in this uh, biography, there's, there's a little phrase from a letter that one of C.S. Lewis's closest friends, Owen Barfield, wrote where he was describing uh, Lewis's writings. And this is what he says, that somehow what Lewis thought about was secretly present in what he said about anything. What Lewis thought about everything, Lewis's view of the world, about God and about life and about uh, the world and the earth and everything, his whole view, whenever he was talking about every, anything, it was children's you know, uh, fantasy literature, whether it was uh, you know, medieval scholarship, whether it was uh, adult fiction, whether it was Christian apologetics, his view of the world showed up everywhere. And, you know, it's a little bit like a tree. You know, if you look at a tree, uh, a tree is basically a trunk with branches coming out. And, but if you look at any of the branches, each branch is basically a little tree, right? It's like a trunk with more branches coming out. And if you follow it all the way down, even to the leaves, each little branch, each little leaf, if you look at it, is the shape of the whole tree. It's got a little trunk and it's got uh, branches coming out so that... In each of the little parts, you have a picture of the whole. And that's what Barfield was saying about Lewis's writings. You read a little essay he's writing, his whole big picture of the world is contained right there. And what's fascinating about the Bible is that the Bible is brilliantly that way also. That the Bible, as, as a story as a whole, is about God coming and rescuing sinful, broken people like us, drawing them them to himself, and ultimately leading them to a great feast where they will eat with him in his presence, and he's making a a giant family. That's kind of the big picture, and um, that's the whole tree of the Bible. It's the gospel, and uh, one of the things that you find as you read through the Bible is that in almost every little passage, every little book, is that gospel is secretly present there. The, the picture of the whole is secretly present there. And it's actually true uh, in a passage, um, in this passage about Cheddar Lamer and these eastern kings, is just basically a little leaf of the gospel, a little, little leaf of the Bible. And yet the whole story of what the Bible is doing is contained in this weird little passage that I read to you with all the names about Amraphel, king of, you never heard of, 
you know, wherever that place is. Uh, the whole gospel is contained here. And so what I want to do this morning is I actually I just want to tell you what the gospel is. Because if you've been coming to this church for any amount of time, you know that I talk a lot about the gospel. Um, you know, I'll often say things that Christianity is not about uh, doing good things. It is about believing the gospel. And that the thing that will change your life, rules and spiritual disciplines will not change your life. Only the good news of Jesus Christ will change you. And so the question is, what is the gospel? What is the good news? And, you know, simply put, the gospel is that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ has died on, the sin, or died on the cross for our sins, and he's risen from the dead to conquer death forever. That's a, a simply put. But I think this text shows us a few things of why that little statement of what Jesus has done is deeply significant. And so I want to point out three things from this text about what's significant about the gospel. The first thing about the gospel is that the gospel is fundamentally a historical event. The gospel is something that happened. It's not something we're do, we do. It's not something that we, you know, it's not a spiritual practice. It's something that's already happened and it's done with. Second of all, the gospel is in the announcement of a kingdom. You know, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is the true king of the world, has come. He's bringing a kingdom. He's challenging the kings of the world. So it's the announcement of a kingdom. And lastly, the gospel is an offer of grace. Okay? And if you take those three things, I, I think this, I, these might sound obscure, but those three things, that the gospel is a historical event, it's an announcement of a kingdom, and it's an offer of grace, gives you a very big, pic, a, a very holistic picture of what our whole faith is about, what this church is about. What we are founded on is that little truth of the gospel that we say to each other over and over again, that I say over and over again that we're, our hope is in the gospel. So we're going to look at those three things uh, this morning. So first of all, and you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring it out of this text. Some of you might, some of you might say, yeah, I'm stretching a little bit. I, we'll see, okay? I'm, uh, we'll see if I'm stretching. Okay, so first of all, the gospel is a historical event. Um, now, the passage we're looking at today, it begins by saying this. Sorry to read this again. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elaser, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Soar, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So let me just, I'm going to summarize what this, this passage is about. Basically what you have is you have these four kings who are pretty powerful kings. They live in the, uh, in the east, basically the, um, uh, in the Mesopotamia near uh, the Persian Gulf. And uh, they have become overlords of these five smaller kingdoms that are near the promised land where, where Lot has gone to live. And so basically, they're, um, uh, the, they, the, they've been taxing them and oppressing them for 12 years, these smaller, five smaller kingdoms. And all of a sudden, uh, the, in, the, in the 13th year, these smaller, five smaller kingdoms are having this uprising. They say, we're not going to be taxed. We're not going to be oppressed anymore. And so these four bigger kings are coming to, you know, take you know, put them in their place. And so in the process, they, they go through uh, all the kingdoms that are on their way, and they're basically steamrolling all these kingdoms. And then finally, they come into battle with Sodom and Gomorrah and these other towns where Lot's living, and they take Lot prisoner and take all his stuff. And so what happens is Abram comes and he rescues Lot. 
And uh, in the end, they go and they have this great feast with Melchizedek, who's uh, the, the high priest of, of in, in Salem. Um, and so it's a story, um, it's an interesting little narrative, but I think that the reason that this passage is hard for us to read, I don't know if that's hard for you to listen to when I was reading it to you, or if you, when you're doing your Bible reading, you come to a passage like this, and you, you know, you kind of breeze through it, and let's get on to the next thing, is because it's filled with a bunch of names and a bunch of people, we don't know who they are, we don't even know what these places are, I'm not even really sure I care what these places are, and, uh, and I think that the, um, the, the thing that makes passages like this hard to read is that they're not what we're expecting from the Bible. What we expect the Bible to be is kind of like, a, you know, a chicken soup for the soul kind of book, right? You, that you put on a, the coffee table and you can kind of pick it up now and then and you, you open to wherever you are and it has something uplifting to read that day. And, you know, when we come, and we do that, so we, we sit down and we read the Bible, and then we're in Genesis 14, and we're le- reading about Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and, you know, we're saying, wow, that's, that's really put my day in perspective. Uh, Amraphel, Amraphel, king of Shinar, you know, I just want to love God and love my neighbor, because that just got, and it's not, and we say, why is this here? And um, I think, uh, you know, that's our expectation. We have, you know, Shannon's told me a number of times that when she grew up in the church, she grew up going to youth group and learning about the Bible. And how she read the Bible was she'd go to the back to the concordance and she'd look up friendship. And she'd find the 10 verses on friendship and read all the verses on friendship. Because I'm looking for little spiritual maxims that will inspire me for my day. That's what the Bible's about. And um, we don't expect the Bible to be primarily a history book. And yet, that's what we find here. Actually, Huston Smith, who, uh, uh, he wrote a book called The Religions of Man. He's a, it's a, he's a professor of comparative religion. I think he's at Berkeley now. And uh, he, uh, he wrote a book where each chapter, he kind of summarized what each of the re- big religions of the world are about. And in the last chapter, he talks about Christianity. And this is the, how he opens his chapters. He says that Christianity is basically a historical religion. That is to say, it is founded not on abstract principles, but in concrete events, actual historical happenings. The most important of these um, is the life of a Jewish carpenter who, as uh, has often been pointed out, was born in a stable, was executed as a criminal at the age of 33, never traveled more than 90 miles from his birthplace, owned nothing, attended no college, marshaled no army, and instead of producing books, did his own writing in the sand. Nevertheless, his birthday is kept across the world, and his death day sets a gallows against almost every skyline. Who was he? And what Huston Smith said, he's not a Christian, he says that the unique thing about Christianity, and, and to some degree Judaism also, is that Christianity is a historical religion. It's about... Um, uh, things that happened in history. And so, for example, if you read something like uh, the, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, which is one of the most sacred Hindu texts, um, which is it, it, what it, the Bhagavad Gita is basically a conversation between the Lord uh, Krishna and this prince Arjuna during this epic battle. And they basically have a discussion about how do you attain to the eternal and, and attain nirvana and uh, become one with the supreme being. How do you do that? And even though, you know, Hindus may loosely say that Krishna was a historical figure, um, for the most part, 
whether Krishna and Arjuna ever existed, we don't know when they existed, if this battle ever happened, it really doesn't matter. That's not the point, right? The point is the principles that they're saying about, about how do you, they're kind of these timeless truths about how do you be a spiritual person? How do you be a good person? And so the, the, the core of it is not the history. You can do away with the history and it doesn't change anything. Christianity, the Bible, is the exact opposite. The Bible has little sprinkles of spiritual wisdom throughout. You know, it has a book of Proverbs that has, you know, bits of wisdom throughout it. But all through the Old Testament, you find passages like this one we're reading about kings in real places, in real time, real nations, uh, and God working in the midst of real history. And ultimately, the biggest, most important part of Christianity is what Jesus did in history. That here's a man who lived in a time, we basically know the day, wow, what's that? Uh, uh, We basically know the day that Jesus was crucified. We know where he was crucified, what city. We know that Pontius Pilate was actually a governor. Um, These are things that happened in real history. And if that didn't happen, if Jesus wasn't crucified, if he didn't raise from the dead, then our whole faith, our whole, the whole reason we are here here is shipwrecked. So the center of what we believe is in uh, historical things that have happened. And this is actually very different than the other, you know, if you read the Quran and you start reading the Quran, the Quran doesn't enter into a historical narrative like this does. The Quran immediately starts telling you how to obey God. This is how God wants you to live. This is how God wants you to behave. And that's the main core of it, is doing certain things that God calls you to do. The Bible is telling you what God has done in history. And actually, this passage that we're looking at... um, you know, it, the Bible's full of these, where you have a ch- God's chosen one, who's Abraham, goes and rescues uh, Lot in a real culture, in a real history, with people like Cheddar Leomar, king of Elam. Uh, and, you know, what's interesting about this passage is that most scholars say that this passage is actually older than the book of Genesis. So Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and it appears that this is a passage that was written by one of these, the people living in one of these nations, and they gave a military record of what happened. Because if you look there in uh, verse uh, 13, it says that uh, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, why would a Jewish person specify that Abram, Abraham is a Hebrew? This is someone writing this who is giving a historical record of a military campaign And this is the Bible, a lot of how the Bible was composed is the biblical writers taking an historical account and saying this is what happened. They might edit it a little bit, make sure that all the details are right. But, you know, that's a lot of how, you know, if you read the the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke says that Luke went and asked a number of eyewitnesses about what happened in the life of Jesus. And then he takes all their eyewitness accounts and he organizes them into the Gospel of Luke. And that doesn't mean it's not the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It doesn't mean it's not inspired by the Bible. It is inspired by the Bible. But what it tells us is that the Bible is telling us historical events. And um, I think that the reason that that is important, especially with regard to the Gospel, is it says that your relationship to God is not built on your ability to attain to Him through spiritual disciplines. Your relationship to God has been permanently etched history. So as much as you can't change history, you cannot change what God has done for you in Christ. As much as you cannot change what has happened in history, 
you cannot change what God has already done for you in Christ in dying on your sins on the, on the cross for your sins. It is immovable. It's permanent. And if the core of what we believe is about spiritual disciplines, your, your relationship with God is going to be changing and up and down and all over the place. But if the core of our relationship with God is on the permanent events of history, then they can't be changed. And so the first thing about the gospel is the gospel is about things that happen in history. Now, but what does that doesn't say mean? Right? Okay, things happen. What does the gospel mean? Um, and that leads to our second point. That the gospel is the announcement of a kingdom. Now, one of the things that's striking uh, about this passage is the word king shows up 28 times in this passage. This is a passage about kings and kingdoms. And in particular, it's about Abraham, who's God's blessing bearer. He's God's chosen one is showing himself to be superior to the kings of the world. There's all these kings in the ancient Near East, Eastern world, and Abraham's actually defeating them. He's rescuing Lot. He's uh, outsmarting them. He's coming in the dark of night and, and defeats them. And so Abraham shows, God's chosen one shows himself to be um, uh, superior to the kings of the world. And it, in many ways, that's what the storyline of the Bible is, is about God's chosen king coming, bringing his kingdom to, uh, you know, to be superior to the kingdoms of the world. And so that's why Jesus says, you know, when he comes preaching the gospel, it said, he, he preached the gospel saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And, uh, um, and Jesus teaches us to pray, your, your kingdom come, your will be done as earth is, on earth as it is in heaven. So the gospel is in many ways about God's kingdom coming. And um, I want to just say a few things that we see in this passage about the nature of that kingdom. The first thing is that the kingdom is an international kingdom. Um, you know, the fact that this passage b begins by listing nations shows that when Abraham became a Christian, when he met God and uh, began a relationship with God, he did not form a compound out in the county or in the desert and be a hermit and isolate himself from the rest of the world where he was going to have a spiritual relationship uh, independent of international affairs and what's happening in the world. Genesis 14, all of a sudden, Abraham is put right in the middle of international affairs and what's happening in the world and, you know, battles. And, and, uh, and what's fascinating is that as you look throughout history, the gospel has had a tremendous power uh, to root itself in all kinds, every kind of nation, every kind of continent. I, I, I may have shared this with you before, that um, as you look at the history of the church, um, the gospel has been able to have its core, it's kind of the center of it, in every different continent. Like, if you look at the other religions, for example, you know, Hinduism has never had its roots and core outside of India or, or Southeast Asia. Uh, Buddhism has never had its center, its core, its center of mass outside of China. Uh, Islam has never had its center of mass outside of the Middle, of, in Middle East. You know, uh, Native American or, or uh, you know, Australian indigenous tribes never had their religion outside of their ethnic group, their geographical location. But as you look at the history of the church, the church was first had its center of mass in Palestine, then it was up in Turkey in Acts, in the following centuries, it was in North Africa. Then the center of mass moved up into Italy, into Rome, and then into Europe in the Middle Ages, in the medieval period. And then after the Reformation, the center of mass was in the British Isles. 
And then in the new world, the center of mass of Christianity came to the United States, in the new world. Right now, 85% of Christians live in the majority world. Uh, Africa, 60% Christian. Um, uh, South America, China. Percentage-wise, there's more uh, Christians in China than in Whatcom County. Uh, Korea is 40% Christian. All of a sudden, you see that Christianity has had an international... um, appeal, adaptation, it's able to adapt to all kinds of different nations, and it's always stepping into the international scene. And um, you might say, well, you know, what does that have to do with Abraham? Abraham here, his relationships with the international affairs is he's going to battle with them, and, you know, aren't we supposed to love our neighbor, and uh, isn't that what our relationship with international affairs is, is, is to love people? But what we actually see Abraham doing is he's rescuing his nephew Lot who's been taken captive by some wicked kings. And you know, I'll tell you just uh, a few months ago I met uh, they were they're friends of the Fredettes who are um, they, uh, they live in Thailand. They're missionaries in Burma and uh, this guy's a doctor and he was, he was telling me a little bit about what his ministry and what he does. He basically uh, sneaks into Burma illegally because Burma is a closed country. It's one of the worst violators of human uh, human rights violations, human trafficking uh, in the world, and uh, basically what he does is he goes in with a team. They'll go in the in under the flatbeds of a boat and cross rivers, hike through the jungles into villages to go liberate slaves, um, and they're armed. They got machine guns, and these are Christians. And what they're going is they are defying these world kingdoms, these world regimes that are oppressing people. And they go and he said, you know, they're not trying to start battles. They're not trying to shoot people. They're not trying to do anything like that. They're trying to rescue people. And they are, they are di- um, uh, in direct conflict with the kingdoms of the world. And what Jesus has always been doing is been challenging the kingdoms of the world. And, um, you know, that's essentially what we see Abraham doing here. Look at verse 14. Um, you know, Lot has been taken captive by this alliance of five large kings. And it says that in verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them. This is a very small army. He's going against five kingdoms who are just steamrolling all the kingdoms that they find on their path into the promised land. And he takes 318 of them and he goes uh, and uh, uh, um, and it says, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night. He's sneaking in uh, by night. He's getting, uh, getting Lot, he and his servants, and uh, defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And so Abraham is fundamentally here a liberator. He is a liberating oppressor people. And um, let me just say that Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus through his resurrection has been appointed by God as the true king of the world. And what Jesus has been doing throughout the history of the world, I wish I could talk to you about the relationship between Christianity and slavery uh, in the history of the world, but Jesus throughout the course of the church has been liberating oppressed people and enslaved, both people who are oppressed internally by our sin uh, and by addictions and people are oppressed by wicked governments and, um, and uh, by poverty. Jesus is a liberator. And, um, you know, actually just this past week, 
my son Will was telling me that when Jesus comes back, he's going to have a sword, and he's going to have a shield, and he's going to have a mustache. And, uh, and Will gets it. You know, I mean, that's not, you better watch out, okay? Jesus coming with a mustache, and you don't, uh, don't mess around with him. What Will gets is that Jesus is not some spiritual guru you know, gives you little maxims to make you, uh, I mean, he does that. He does make, give us a sense of joy. He does make us feel loved. But Jesus is a liberator of the oppressed. And, uh, and Jesus is, is uh, liberating us. And when you see that Jesus dying on the cross, it's very interesting because Jesus dying on the cross, he's freeing us from sin because he's reconciling us to God. He's uh, dying for our sins that are, so that our sins will be forgiven. But you look at the cross. What is a cross? That was the power of Caesar, the Roman emperor, to oppress people. And so Jesus comes and he bears the cross and he is resurrected the third day. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking a wicked emperor and regime and he's disarming him and saying, you no longer have power anymore. So simultaneously, Jesus is freeing us from sin internally, our internal oppression, our personal oppression, but also on a global international scale, he is standing against the kingdoms of the world as a, as a liber, liberator of the oppressed. And Jesus is always doing that. And um, Jesus is reversing the curse. The gospel, this is, a, this is, there's a lot to the gospel. I know you want it to be simple. <laughs> There's a lot to it. It's rich, okay? The gospel is a historical event, something that's already been etched in history that God has done for us. And it is, a, it is the announcement of God's kingdom. Jesus is the true king of the world. And he is standing against evil king, kingdoms of the world. He's liberating people. He's liberating us. But generally, when talk about the gospel, it's not quite that big, right? It's much more personal. It's about, you know, what about my day-to-day life and, uh, you know, my sense of feeling and wanting to feel connected to God, where's the personal side? You know, that's kind of the big gospel, the macro gospel. Where's the micro gospel about my, about my life? And that leads to our third point, is that the gospel is also an offer of grace. What the gospel is, is an offer of grace. Now, one of the things that's, I think, most striking about, this, about Genesis 14 is that Lot is being rescued by God's chosen one. Lot Abraham um, is saving Lot, and yet Lot by no means deserves it. If you were here last week, we know that Lot, uh, the land where all these, the Sodom and Gomorrah, all these wicked people were living, uh, and he chose a life of godlessness, and he walked away from God. He says, I don't want to be with Abraham and the promises of God and dwell in the promised land. I want to go my own way. I want to get rich over in the, in, the, uh, in the Jordan Valley, and I have dreams for my life, and God is not a part of it. And we find out, and you would think that now when these five kings come and they take Lot prisoner and they strip him of everything he can, and he's, and he's sitting, you know, chained up as some slave to these pagan kings, you would think that the text would be like, Lot, what do you expect? That's what you, that's what you asked for. You said you wanted to run away from God. You're getting what you deserve. There's not a word of that. There's not a word of Lot getting what he deserved. It's simply that Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, and Abraham went and rescued him. And that's what the center of the gospel, experiencing the gospel, is knowing that we are constantly turning our back on God. And he doesn't do that to us. 
He's forgiven all of our sins. And he, uh, he does not deal with us according to our sin, but according to his steadfast love and faithfulness for us in Christ. That is the offer of the gospel, is that it is freely. God wants to come, you to come to him freely, not because you've gotten your life together. Lot didn't get his life together. And look at God pursuing him, sending his chosen one uh, to go and rescue Lot. And um, in the midst of this passage where God is showing that the story of the Bible is about his chosen one going and rescue, rescue sinners. That's what happened for us. There's a, an obscure character that shows up in this passage. He only shows up in a couple verses in the whole Bible. And, um, and the, the, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that this guy is a, an Old Testament picture of Jesus. You can see him there in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Many, uh, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and bless, uh, blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so here we have a guy who's a high priest like Jesus. He comes out serving bread and wine. Strange little illusion there. Uh, his name, Melchizedek, means the king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem also, which means the king of peace. And even Abraham, who is the, you know, patriarch par excellence, he's like the man of the Old Testament, comes and gives a tenth to this guy. A tenth of all of his spoils. He's uh, serving him, and this guy comes and blesses Abraham. And what we have here is a picture of Jesus. And what Melchizedek does is at the end of this battle... He comes and he serves a great banquet, this great feast. And he invites Abraham and undeserving Lot, who has walked away from God. And you know when it talks about bread and wine, it's not this. It's not a little piece of bread and a thimble of wine. It's not that. He's, he brought out the fatted calf. He's having, you know, the word for bread is just short for a lot of food. And he brings out a lot of food, and he makes this great, huge banquet where they begin to worship God. And he's blessing them, and they're praising God and thanking God. And this is the picture of the the gospel. This is the picture of the Bible, is that God is welcoming undeserving sinners like us. And he's saying, come to me freely. And come sit at my table and be blessed and be welcomed. And you know, you you see our little logo on on our church name, Christ Church Bellingham. There's a table. And the reason is because throughout the Bible, tables are showing up. Of That's what salvation looks like, is God bringing people to his table so that every time we come here and we, God brings us to his table when we're at home group and we're eating together, and you invite your neighbor over to sit and uh, eat at your table and eat together, all these things are a taste of the offer of grace in the gospel that God says, come freely and eat with me. And I'll tell you, that gospel, the one that's etched into history, that is this huge coming of the kingdom, Jesus, the true king of the world, which is a free offer to, of grace to each one of us to come freely. That is what this church is built on. And the way that we're going to love each other, the way that we're going to create that, the, the spirit of service for one another, uh, a warmth, uh, a gentleness, a, um, a joy, is when that gospel is the foundation and we never grow out of it. So uh, may we never grow out of it. And let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, and uh, we thank you that we see throughout the Bible that you are a rescuer. 
and that the reason we are all here is because you have rescued us. And so it's with thankful hearts uh, that we sing your praises, that we give you offerings, that we pray to you, that we confess our sins to you, and that we want to serve you. And we pray that this church would be a place where that gospel is proclaimed and that uh, more people would even come and hear it and believe and that we would not be changed by calls to be good or to do spiritual disciplines, but we would be transformed by good news that gives us joy and the kind of joy that calls us to love each other and to love our neighbor. So uh, we just thank you uh, that the gospel is true and we give you our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen.